Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we have a very special guest, Gary Francis. A 50-plus year broadcast radio professional on both sides of the microphone in the New England area, Gary is here today to share with us a rare lost audio artifact from Lost in Space, an in-depth extended one-on-one interview with the great Jonathan Harris, which he recorded on the occasion of the 1995 Lost in Space 30th Anniversary Cast Reunion in Boston, Massachusetts. What makes this interview so rare, and the reason that I'm dubbing it the Lost Jonathan Harris interview, is that it was never broadcast. We'll discuss how Gary managed to snag this audience with Harris, and what it was like to meet his self, as well as why the recording remained unaired for nearly 30 years. But first, a little background information on Gary. Gary Francis was born and raised in Lowell, Mass., and resides in northern Massachusetts to this day. While attending high school at Keith Academy, he got an early start in one of his later vocations, working part-time at local WCAP radio as a producer and announcer. Another after-school job, working for Glenny's Ice Cream, the originator of the roadside ice cream stand concept in the 1930s, would eventually lead to another passion-turned-career as owner and operator of Gary's Homemade Ice Cream, now celebrating its 47th season. After graduating from high school, Gary went on to attend St. Thomas College in Bloomfield, Connecticut, and later Wadhams Hall in Ogdensburg, New York. After college, he went full-time into radio, working at numerous iconic stations in Boston, and the surrounding areas. With his velvet-smooth voice and engaging demeanor, Gary also became the voiceover talent behind numerous commercials and audio presentations up and down the East Coast. But it was during his tenure at WLLH in Lowell as host of the Morning Magazine show that Gary recorded the lost Jonathan Harris interview, an opportunity that he relished as a lifelong, passionate fan of Lost in Space. Gary is still active in broadcast radio today, as well as running his successful homemade ice cream business. When not engaged in those careers, he's busy with yet another passion, oil painting. We're grateful that this lost interview with the actor who embodied Dr. Zachary Smith is finally being broadcast, and honored that Gary decided to share it for the first time with our audience. We'll be playing the interview in its entirety, But before and after, we'll also visit with the man who made this all possible, 
and get the story behind the story. So sit back and enjoy this special double feature edition of Calling Alpha Control with Gary Francis and the Lost Jonathan Harris interview. Gary Francis, welcome to Alpha Control. It's a pleasure to have you on the show at long last. Well, thank you, Lane. It's a pleasure to be here with you, too, and finally be talking to you in person. That's great. Well, we're so delighted and honored that you have chosen to share your exclusive, never-before-aired Jonathan Harris interview with our audience. But before we get to that, I'm going to ask you the question I like to ask everybody. Tell us about how you first experienced and grew to love Lost in Space and why. Well, that's a pretty easy question to answer. CBS, of course, the summer of 1965 was running all the uh, the promos of this great new show that was coming up, and it just looked so fantastic. And I said, mm. wow, this is a show I'm going to have to watch. At the time, I wasn't exactly sure my parents were going to let me watch it, because the last time I had watched a space show... And in those days, that was back in grammar school, because I would have been 13 when Lost in Space came on, because I was born in 52. Back in uh, probably the early 60s, when my favorite Martian first came out with Ray Walston and Bill Bixby, I sort of got myself in trouble. I think I was in the fifth or sixth grade. Now, nowadays, they would call this being very very creative. (laughs) In those days, (laughs) I was a bad boy, I guess. What happened was I went to school one day. I took the uh, rabbit ears off the back of our TV, and I actually put them under my jacket. (laughs) And people convinced at school that I was a Martian like Uncle Martin. I walked into school with the TV antennas up. Well, the teacher called the principal, the principal called my parents, and I was forbidden to watch my favorite Martian. (laughs) Did you get to wave your little index finger at anybody like Uncle Martin did? Yes, naturally, yes. (laughs) But uh, they just did not find that creative. Of course, the teachers back in those days, they were just all so so, such stuffed shirts, shall we say. Yes, I can only imagine. (laughs) But no, they let me watch Lost in Space. This is also kind of a funny story. Not realizing in those days that the show was going to be in black and white the first season, I kept begging my father to buy us a color TV. So we'd be able to watch the show in color. And so, of course, he did. And then the first episode comes on and it's in black and white. (laughs) Oops. Oops. Psych. But it was one of the few shows that was in black and white. I can remember, I think, only two shows, the Dick Van Dyke show and Lost in Space were in black and white on CBS. Of course, at that point, NBC was the full color network. Mm -hmm. And then... uh, ABC, well, of course, ABC was ABC. I mean, they had like the worst uh, television equipment in the universe. But everybody by 66 and 60, uh, 65, 66, 67, that was the year. The second year of Lost in Space was the year that every TV show in primetime was finally in color. Right, right. Did you enjoy the show right off the bat, though, despite the black and white? Well, first of all, I didn't realize it was going to be a one-hour show. So I was thrilled when they went to commercial break and then came back again after the commercial break. And they packed so much into that first episode. I mean, between the launch and Dr. Smith knocking out the guard and then the media storm, which, Mm. you know, I must have been in my 30s before I finally realized those were aluminum foil balls they were throwing at the Jupiter, too. I did not even realize it. To me, they were real meteorites. Yeah, it was a great effect. It really was. And, of course, then later finding out how it was done with the Jupiter 2 on its side and all, that was uh, a bit of a letdown. <laughs> but uh, 
Well, 13 was a perfect age, right? That's just about the Will Robinson age. Did you uh, identify with the character? I did. I did. As a matter of fact, uh, Jonathan Harris is not the only person that I interviewed uh, from Lost in Space. Back in, let's see, I, was, I started in radio in 1970. No, 68, actually, when I was very young. But then my first real full-time job was in 1970 in the summer as a fill-in. I said to myself, I'm going to use the fact that I'm working in radio as a way to talk to Bill Moomy. Mm. So I uh, found out uh, in those days very early on how you get a hold of stars. And it was simple. You found out who their agent was, and then you called the agent and set up an interview. Mm. So, uh, of course, back in those days, we didn't have the Internet. We had to you know, make, make phone calls and call the Screen Actors Guild and the mm. and after the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. And, of course, they wouldn't give that information out to just anybody. But being in radio, I was a member of AFTRA myself because I was working at a Boston radio station. Oh. So I just called up, asked for membership, and membership said, Oh, Bill Moomy, yes, his agent is uh, so-and-so, and here's the phone number to call their office. Easy peasy. Oh, it was, <laughs> it was. So uh, I did an interview with Bill shortly after he did Bless the Beasts and the Children, and that had to be 69 or 70. Somewhere on a reel upstairs in my vault is probably uh, that interview, but even if I find it, I'm not sure what kind of shape it's going to be in because of... uh, uh, sticky tape syndrome that uh, mm. that happened mm. back on the on the mylar tape back in those days but i'm gonna look for it one of these days yeah well if you find it you know who to call right? i do definitely <laughs> definitely well we've been communicating for several weeks about doing the show and i'm so happy that we're finally getting to do it so let's talk about the interview we're going to listen to right now give us the who what where when and how this interview came about All right. Well, of course, it was done during the 30th anniversary uh, get-together of uh, Lost in Space. It was done at the uh, Bayside Exhibition Center in Boston, which is not even there anymore. Now it's in Boston Convention Center. Mm. But five years before, I had gone to the uh, 25th anniversary party, which was at the same place, run Mm -hmm. by the same person, Gary Summers. People uh, may recognize that name. Gary was the person you saw for many years on Antiques Roadshow with the ponytail and the Hawaiian shirts. He was the producer of of the two Lost in Space shows there. I had met uh, Jonathan at that show originally, and just for a brief second, you know, he got an autograph and that was about it. And Mm. then uh, I had uh, met Kevin Burns because that was where Kevin first introduced the robot after Greg Jean had converted it back from the Mystery Island robot back oh. to the Lost in Space robot. I mentioned to Jonathan, she had love to build a robot, and he said, well, go talk to Kevin. So I did. I was you know, assuming that Kevin, being you know a, a BU film professor from Boston here, just before he went to work for Fox, I said, well, you know, we're both from the area, we're going to get along fine, it'll be no problem. Well, I went to Kevin, and I said, Kevin, I want to build a robot. He goes, don't do it. Mm. <laughs> like, oh, excuse me? Uh, he was trying to protect the trademark, and he didn't want, you know, them all over the place, which, of course, now they are. Right. I kind of forgot about it after that. But because uh, having met Kevin, and we started to talk a lot, and over the next five years, we talked probably a couple of times a week. Now, of course, Kevin was on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast, and time meant nothing to Kevin. So mm. my phone would ring at like 2 o'clock in the morning, and, I, <laughs> and it would be Kevin. And we would talk for like an hour or two at, the, at a time. Wow. There's another interview, by the way, that I have never mentioned to anybody. I actually talked to Erwin Allen one time, and I had forgotten about this oh. until I was going back through some notes. What, 
What it was, I was in the back of the ice cream shop one day. That's my full-time work, by the way. I'm in the ice cream business. Something in my mind was saying, you know, I wonder what Irwin Allen is doing these days. Mm. So I I called 20th Century Fox, and I asked for Irwin Allen. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, sir. He's not here anymore. He's now uh, over at Warner Brothers. So I called Warner Brothers. And I can remember we had a payphone in the back of the shop in those days. So I had to keep clicking in money into the pay phone. We didn't have a regular business phone. <laughs> so uh, I asked for Erwin Allen's office when I called the main number at Warner Brothers. It rang through, and a gentleman answers the phone, and he goes, Erwin Allen's office. And I go, hi, could I talk to Erwin? Now, I must have been maybe 19 or 20 at the time. <laughs> so he goes, uh, well, who's calling? And I said, well, I'm a big fan of Lost in Space. Who's this? And he goes, this is Paul Z. Oh, Paul Zastrinevich. He goes, oh, you can pronounce my name. <laughs> and so he uh, he said, well, you know, Mr. Allen's very busy. And in the background, I hear, who is it? Who is it? <laughs> so Paul says, wait, wait a minute. Erwin will give you a couple of minutes. And, uh-huh. and so we chatted. And I told him, you know, I was a big fan and what a great show. And uh, was wow. he ever going to do a movie? And I said, uh, you wouldn't have anything like an old script or something you could send me. He goes, why didn't you call me when I was over at Fox? We threw so much stuff away. I could have I could have sent it all to you. (laughs) (laughs) He he was funny. He really was. But uh, I had forgotten about that until about a year ago when I was going through some old notes and I came across it. Wow. Too bad you didn't record that. one. Oh, I know. That would have been great. That's great. So but as you will hear in this interview. Jonathan kind of described Irwin the same way. Irwin was very businesslike. You could tell that the minute you talked to him. Businesslike and very curt. And I was used to that because the gentleman I learned the ice cream business from was the very same way. You'd call him up, you'd ask him a question, and he'd give you the answer. And then before you had a chance to say, well, thank you, goodbye, he'd hang up on you. (laughs) So they were the same kind of people. Well, you know, his favorite phrase was time is money. Oh, time is money. Time is money. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, That's great. But, yeah, how'd you score this interview with Jonathan? Well, when I knew they were coming back to Boston for the 30th anniversary, I called Kevin. and I said, Kevin, I want to do an interview for my morning. At that time, I was doing a show called Morning Magazine on WLH Radio in Lowell. Uh, mm. I, w- I would fill in for the regular host, and then I would do the Saturday morning show myself. Sure. Kevin says, well, I'll set it up for you. You can go and you can meet Jonathan. You know, take an hour or two with him if you want. So I did. Now, I went out and I bought a digital recorder for this because I didn't want to be using an old cassette deck. So I went out and spent, God, like three or $400. And so I bought that and I brought it into uh, Boston with me. And I, he was staying at a hotel on uh, Boylston Street, which is a main street in Boston. I was uh, ushered into the presence of Jonathan. Himself. Himself, <laughs> up in his room. You could tell he must have called the maid and had to make the room up and get it all ready. There's a big fruit basket in there. Mm. Before we got started, he wanted to know if I wanted coffee or tea or a soft drink. And I took a soda, which I never should have done. Because I've learned in radio that if I'm drinking soda just before I open a microphone, my stomach starts to gurgle. Oh, no. Well, fortunately, (laughs) Jonathan was doing all the talking. So you didn't hear my stomach gurgling. But uh, he, he was just so nice and so pleasant, and uh, he said, nothing was off limits. Ask him anything I want. He was just so engaging. He was so easy to talk to. 
Wow. Well, it, it, that really comes across in the interview, uh, having listened to it, and that's going to be one of the fun things to talk about. Now, before we start, there's just a couple things. You mentioned he was sitting there and everything. Can you remember how he was dressed? It sounds silly, but I'm, I'm trying to paint a picture here in my mind. Okay, we're sitting in these very uh, upscale chairs, uh, kind of like uh, you'd see in, a, uh, in an upscale uh, living room in the 1950s or 1940s. Sure. And he is in a pair of uh, very nice dress slacks. And a uh, a regular uh, dress shirt with an ascot. Ooh, very nice. You know, it, everything is perfect. The hair is perfect. <laughs> I'm not going to say the makeup was perfect. I don't know if he had makeup on or not. But he yeah. looked just like he's supposed to look. Just like he's supposed to exactly. look. Exactly. And he was, ju- he was just so, so friendly. It was like we had known each other forever. Yeah. Oh, it really comes across. So I want to get to that. I think what we'll do is we're going to play the entire interview front to back. Okay. <laughs> I just want to give a little bit of a, of a warning. To yes, our that's important. Because, yes. Because when you sent me this recording to preview, I noticed it was called Jonathan Harris Raw. And I was kind of scratching my head about that. That wasn't for the reason you thought. In the broadcast industry, raw means unedited. In other words, we've just taken it and just recorded it and we haven't lopped off the beginning or the end, or we haven't taken out breath pauses. However, using that word raw in this particular interview does come in handy because Jonathan's language is somewhat colorful in certain areas. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You he, Apparently, he was very at ease with you, Gary, because so much so that at certain points, he sprinkles his stories with a few choice uh, Anglo-Saxon expletives. Nothing... <laughs> Nothing I'm sure most adults haven't heard before. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, if you're sensitive to that, folks, or you have younger listeners out there with tender ears, this might not be the interview of Jonathan <laughs> Harris you want to hear. I have to be honest, Gary, I debated whether or not to, like, bleep it out or not. But I thought, you know what? That's part of the whole experience. That adds a little layer of authenticity exactly. to it. And, you know, you're getting a sense of the real Jonathan Harris, and yeah. it really makes his stories, uh, I think it just adds a little zing to the whole thing. So, And, you know, out of all the uh, interviews I've ever heard or seen, and there's not a lot of radio or recorded audio-only interviews that I'm, I'm aware of, but there are many video ones where he, there's the Australian one where he does an onstage show. Yes. And then there's uh, other different ones, ones he recorded uh, during the Fantasy Worlds of Rowan Allen. Oh, speaking of that, the fantasy worlds of Erwin Allen, uh, I was invited some years ago after, right after they recorded or filmed the fantasy worlds of Erwin Allen, I got a phone call from a friend in Boston who was the head of the National Association of Radio Talk Show Hosts, and she said to me, how would you like to uh, come to dinner with uh, June Lockhart? Wow. And I'm like, What? <laughs> And she knew I liked Lost in Space. And she goes, yes, June is coming. Uh, June actually at that time was dating uh, someone from the Boston Pops. Oh, And so she came to Boston quite frequently. It wasn't Keith Lockhart. Don't worry about that. Oh, okay. (laughs) But but she she came quite frequently. And so I was invited. There were about 10 of us there. And we were at the Boston Harbor Hotel, which is a very swanky place. Sure. I'll never forget, we we all come in there, and uh, June is sitting right next to me. That was the best part. I We, yeah. we could choose our own seats, and it kind of looked like they had the center of the table set up for her. So I grabbed the seat right next to hers. And sure enough, mm. when she came in, that's where she sat. The, the chef, uh, Daniel Bruce, had this really fancy uh, meal all planned out for us. And uh, the waiter comes over to take beverage orders and whatnot, and June goes, I'm on a special diet. All I can have is 
plain white pasta with butter and salt. That's it. The, the, <laughs> and the waiter, the waiter goes, oh, well, uh, Chef Bruce has a very special meal plan. Nope, nope. That's all I can eat. The rest of them can enjoy it. That's all I can have. And <laughs> I spoke oh, no. to Daniel later because I used to host a, uh, a dining show in Boston. And I asked him later, he goes, he goes, I couldn't believe it. I, I spent all day planning this meal, and oh. then she couldn't enjoy it. Oh, I said, well, Daniel, man. don't worry. I enjoyed it immensely. <laughs> I'll take her portion, folks. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Oh, that's beautiful. But uh, the one thing about this interview, out of all the ones I have ever heard, this is the longest. Yes. I'm glad you brought that up. That's an excellent point. It is a long interview. It's about 50 minutes or so long. Mm-hmm. And there's a special little treat at the end, which we'll talk about after we listen to it, which I just love. Again, adding to the authenticity of it. It's a beautiful interview. So, well, before we hit play on this, do you have anything else we should mention? We already put the disclaimer in there, so mm-hmm. we're, we're covered there. Anything else we should mention? Well, you know, uh, I'm in my late 60s now. And, uh, well, okay, mid-60s. Is, is 67 uh, mid or late? That's mid. Come on. Okay. Well, uh, at one time, I had every Lost in Space toy there was. Matter of fact, New Line Cinema actually was using me as a, uh, I guess, as a test dummy, maybe. (laughs) So every toy that came out, they had me look at the prototypes. Sure. I would make comments about them and whatnot. At that time, I was building my own full-size robot. And by this time, Kevin Burns had said, Go ahead, you can do it. And then actually, Kevin started sending me parts because he had all the original molds. So I still have an original bubble. I still have a set of original arms cast out of the the fiberglass plaster molds. Wow. And a few other parts. I don't have the full-size robot anymore. I did sell that. Uh, Well, you know, here was the problem. When you get to be my age, uh, things just take up space. The robot needed a lot of care as far as dusting and cleaning, and the cat started to think that uh, his uh, tread section was a scratching post. Uh. So I had the robot uh, about four years ago. I had it at a convention in Boston, and it was right next to John Antonelli's uh, uh, chariot. Mm. Somebody came up, actually a few people came up to me and said, uh, would you like to sell the robot? And I said, you know, if somebody offered me the right price... Mm-hmm. I would sell it. I'm not looking to market it. If somebody wants to offer a price and the price appeals to me, then yes. And so one gentleman kept coming back and looking at it and taking pictures of it. Uh, he finally said, how much would you take? And I throw out a huge figure at him. Yeah. Ridiculous, right? Uh, ridiculous. <laughs> totally ridiculous. And I said, if somebody came up with this much cash in their hand, I would sell it. Yeah. So uh, he goes, do you have a business card? So I gave him my business card. And about a month later, I get a phone call and it's like, uh, this is so-and-so and, and, uh, I've arranged to, uh, get the money. I said, okay, (laughs) you know, you let me know when you have it. And, uh, so, okay. I figured I'll never hear from him again. Sure. About two weeks later, he calls me up, tells me I cashed in my IRA and I'm ready to go. Oh my God. (laughs) How soon can you bring it down? I said, is tomorrow okay? <laughs> Took it apart, loaded it into the back of the truck, and uh, off it went. It's it's not too far away. It's less than 25 miles away from here. He actually has a Lost in Space room, a Batman room, and a Doctor Who room in his house. 
Oh, serious fan. Oh, he's a serious fan. Very serious. And at one point, I even had a four-foot Jupiter II made from the original molds. And that was just the shell. Mm. And I am not a model builder. I mean, the robot, it was myself and a couple of other people I had hired who knew about fiberglass and rubber and plastic and electronics. And I, I just way beyond me. So uh, I really couldn't do much with the Jupiter II, but a gentleman down in Providence, Rhode Island, came to me. And if you look up uh, Jupiter II four-foot finished on YouTube, you will find his videos because oh. uh, he's got videos. He did a beautiful restoration job on it. I mean, he, oh, yeah. he's got the uh, the space pod coming out of it now. He has built the uh, legs for it. He, he did a beautiful job on it. I would definitely look for that. And if we find it, I'll link to it on the show notes because that'd be fun for folks to see. So, man, these Lost in Space fans cash in their IRA for a robot. <laughs> that, that does not surprise me. <laughs> well, the funniest part of the whole story, and I hope I don't know if he listens to the podcast or not. But uh, when I went to the house and I rang the doorbell and his mother came to the door because, you know, no hardcore Lost in Space fan who can afford to buy a robot is going to have a family. You know know that. They're not going to be married. They're not going to have a wife because they're not going (laughs) to let them spend this kind of money. So uh, she comes to the door. She goes, oh, he's upstairs over the garage in the room. The room. And I'm like, oh, boy, the room. (laughs) So... As I'm leaving, you know, with this yeah. pocket full of money, mm. I'm. Uh, he says to me, oh, by the way, if on the way out my mother asks you how much I spent for the robot, don't tell her. <laughs> <laughs> so I've never told anybody how much I, I sold it for. That's classic. Well, I can only imagine. Well, you know, Dick uh, Tufel did a whole bunch of custom lines for me, too. Uh, I called Dick one day. I had met him a couple of times at the different shows. And I called him, told him I had a full-size robot. I said, Dick, if I was to send you a script, could you record it for me? He goes, mm, well, I'll do that for you, sure. So mm. he did. There were lines similar to... Uh, I am sorry, Gary, but that does not compute. Gary approaching. Hide the ice cream. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, there's nobody like Dick Tufeld's voice. It's oh, amazing. It was great. I can remember Dick uh, you know, being uh, a radio announcer myself. Uh, there were two people I always thought had the best voices on radio or television. One was Dick Tufeld. I can remember him introducing the Hollywood Palace back in 1963. Oh, and then, wow. of course, he was the announcer for uh, the Emmys and the Academy Awards and things like that. And the other was Fred Foy, who was the announcer for the Lone Ranger towards the last uh, 15 years of its existence. Oh. The real deep-voiced actor. Yes. Yeah. And the funny thing was, I found out right just before he passed away, that he lived 10 miles away from me. After he retired, he moved to Woburn, Massachusetts. Amazing. So I made sure to uh, hook up with him, and I actually had him on my uh, my afternoon talk show. That's awesome. That's great. Oh, he was just... He had stories about the Green Hornet and the Lone Ranger and... Uh, oh. You're a rare bird, Gary. <laughs> to have been able to meet and know your two greatest radio heroes like that, that's awesome. It's inspiring, right? It is. It really is. Yeah. Well, I think we should play this interview. Okay. And so, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I give you Gary Francis and the lost Jonathan Harris interview right now. Morning Magazine continues now. Good morning, Gary Francis, on this weekend edition of Morning Magazine. 
Joining us now, well, first of all, you know that I very rarely leave the studio. Most of my interviews are done by telephone, or somebody will come into our studios here in the Sheraton Hotel in Lowell. But today, I had to leave the hotel, because one of my childhood heroes is with me. (laughs) Jonathan Harris, Dr. Smith from Lost in Space. Jonathan, it is a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Also known as Gary's hero. (laughs) It's lovely to see you. And here we are for the 30th anniversary. Can you believe that? I can't. It's just madness. And you don't look a day older. Well, you're very kind, and uh, the lighting is probably very good here. Uh, I'm 30 years older. Simple as that. But I feel wonderful, and I and uh, people tell me I look well, so that's good. Age is a number, anyway. Exactly. People are always asking me, how old are you? And I always answer, how old is the part? Or how old would you like me to be? And if things get really out of hand, I say, I'm old enough to know better than to answer your stupid question. <laughs> and uh, such a thing about age. Anyway, here we all are, all of us. For the 30th anniversary of the Bayside Expo on Saturday and Sunday, tomorrow and Sunday. And if you had said to me 30 years ago, this is going to become a great cult classic, I would have said, oh, really, how very interesting. What's the next scene, right? (laughs) But it happened. It did. Why? Who knows? And if anyone had told me that in my dotage I would become a cult figure, I'd also have a large laugh. But it's true. I am. And And I rather like it. I rather like it. All over the world. I make uh, appearances all over the world. And uh, it's the same all over. People are just wonderful. They love the show and they love me. And I like that a lot, I have to tell you, Gary. Well, you made the whole show. Well, whatever. I I had the time of my life, you understand that. Also, um, I was very lucky. I really was. You know, originally he was designed as a deep-dyed, snarling villain. I hated him. And because I'm smart... I knew they'd kill him off in five shows because he was awful. No longevity. Again, unemployed. Oh, boring, boring, boring. So I started to sneak in. I thought nobody would notice my little comedic villainous bits for which I'm justly famous. That's what I love to do. And I must say in Irwin's defense, Irwin Allen, the producer, who was a very difficult man, make no mistake, but he had certain expertise which I respected and admired. He came to my dressing room one day and uh, pointed his finger. He was a great finger pointer. And he pointed and said, I know what you're doing. And I said, oh, God. Uh, and? And he paused, a very pregnant pause, and said, do more, and walked out. It worked. I had carte blanche, first and only time in my long career that I had carte blanche to rewrite at will, and I did. And the ratings reflected my expertise, how you say. And that's all he really cared about, you see. Which is fine. That's the Bible, the ratings. Anyway, it worked. And uh, people loved the show and still do. And I think that's wonderful. I'm very grateful. I am. I've been around a long time, as you must surely know. I made my Broadway debut in 1942. My God. That's 50 some odd years ago. I can't believe it. And never stopped working. Talk about luck. Talk about luck. Boy, there's a little talent tucked in there somewhere, you know. A lot of talent. Well, but luck, I've never stopped working. I've done it all. I started live television in New York. Me, I did that. The wonderful live television, Studio One, Omnibus, Philco Playhouse, Craft Playhouse. Oh, it was wonderful. And the writing. We had Reginald Rose and Robert Allen Arthur, Rod Serling, writing, you know, majestically. 
to also work in television with Rod Serling. I did indeed. I did Twilight Zones. And then I saw a side of Rod Serling that nobody had ever seen. Oh, really? Humor. Funny. Oh, oh, certainly. Jonas, I'll pause for a minute. There we go. Uh, you were talking about Rod Serling and the other oh, side. Oh, yes. There was a game show, and it was my favorite game shows. I've done them all. The Liars Club, it was called. Do you remember that at all? Yes. Well, lo and behold, in the second season, I was a regular on that. In the second season, Rod Serling was the host. Wow. Why? I haven't got a clue. <laughs> Rod Serling was the host of this crazy, crazy game show. And I adored him because I'd done the Twilight Zones and I respected him so much. The writing was so superb. And I used to break him up. And it was the easiest pie I discovered. Because as we were, we celebrities, quote, were introduced, the camera would pan to us. And then it would pan back to Rod. And each time it panned to me and then panned back to Rod, I'd cross my eyes at him and he'd fall down on the floor <laughs> and scream. And daily, please don't do that. I'm disgracing myself. We had a wonderful time. But how unlike... You see, there was a whole different side of Rod who most people thought was so serious. He was, of course, a superb writer. Hmm. The other night on PBS was a... a Rod's Rolling Special. Yes, and I watched it. Oh, it took me back. The Discovery Channel. No. Yes, Discovery recently did a, uh, a biography on him, too. Did they? It's very good. Remember Requiem for a Heavyweight? Yes. Jack Palance was so wonderful. Edwin Keenan Wynn. And oh, the wonderful Playhouse 90 zeroed. My, anyway. And after the Twilight Zone, you were involved with, um, I want to say Jose Jimenez, but uh, Bill Dana. The Bill Dana show. Bill Dana oh, show. I had a marvelous time with that. I was the hotel manager, Mr. Phillips. Uh, Bill used to call Mr. Phillips. Uh, oh, that was a lovely show. I had a good time because I loved the part. I have to enjoy it, you see. I, I enjoy the work. If you don't enjoy the work, why do it? And speak about enjoying the work. Whoever had such a good time as Dr. Smith? Oh, it must have been great. It was, must have been like being at recess every day. Exactly. Interesting that you should say that, Gary. You know how I patterned him? How? From every kid I'd ever known in my whole life. Really? I did everything they do. And got away with it. And got away with it, so I became the hero. Sure. I was the first anti-hero in television to become the hero. The first five episodes, he was so dark and Oh, I hated him. I hated him. But that's what was on the page. Because mm. uh, CBS had wanted a villain. They wanted me as a turner. Wish I'd known that before we made the deal. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. I adjusted that quickly, you may be sure. One of the first episodes I can remember where you did something funny, uh, you're digging a ditch. And the robot is there, and uh, Will is there, and Professor Robinson comes up. Well, the robot's digging the ditch. And you hear them coming, and you grab the shovel away from the robot to make one of your day. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course, he did all of it. I dreamed up aspects for his nature. He interested me. He amused me. He, delight, he delighted me. I thought he was a kick. I really did. Anything, Crazy. Anything to get back to Earth. Oh, of course, <laughs> never did, naturally. No. But uh, it was a fabulous character. And one of my big ones, I think... The only one that, that looms close to the character that I created was my man in The Third Man, which was my first series. I liked him very much, too. Uh, he was uh, the confidant of Michael Rennie, and uh, uh, that, that's what he was. But I said to myself, oh, he's going to be a lot more than that in my hands. I made him a true eccentric, 
a real eccentric, to the point where I never changed my watch. It was New York time, which was the only time. All other times were frivolous, a true eccentric. I wore exactly the same clothes in 90 episodes. I had six suits, but they were all the, the same. same, because anything else was frivolous. He was not without humor, but he never smiled. I got tons of mail. Are you ever going to smile? I'm no fool, you know. Never smiled. That was frivolity, and there was no, no smiling. And I was a financial wizard, and I was all of that. And I was Michael's confidant, and buddy, and pal, and oh, we had such a time. We, sh we shot half of this in Hollywood and the other half in London courtesy of the BBC. Oh, they are generous, may I tell you? Uh, that was very nice. So I like that man. Speaking of London, are you from England originally? No, I was born in New York City. The city itself? The city itself. Because the accent always made Oh, well, it. lots of people say, are you British? And I always answer, no, I'm just affected. <laughs> no, it's good diction, stage diction. I was brought up on the stage where you had to talk. And a lot of actors should listen to this now. You have to talk and be understood and not that bores me to death because people are supposed to hear us and understand what we are saying and then make up their own minds whether they like what we're saying you know but you've got to hear it first and there's so much mumble fumble going on now on the television that i really cannot stand it i think maybe i'm going deaf because i don't understand the, what, what they're talking about no, I think it's the, the they don't they don't understand the necessity for for interpreting clearly what the hell they're talking Look at about. Peter Falk, Colombo. Oh. You can't tell any of these. Uh, well, Peter Falk's got a speech impediment anyway. He can't say ill. I, I love you. I used to know Peter very well, but Hollywood, I haven't seen him for years either. Hollywood, doesn't matter. I love you. Uh, he can't say ill. Now, you've worked with so many people oh, in God, the industry, yes. but you also spent three years working with a mechanical man. Mm. Now, what was that like? May I tell you, nobody ever had it so good. Imagine a robot who was my straight man. Who ever had that? That was a blessing. A blessing I'm forever grateful. It was heaven. So many of the Lost in Space fan magazines, and I have them all, they have lists of all the various insults. I, that are mine. I've got them at home. Hundreds. Yes. And I do believe I use them all. The alliteratives. I used to stay up half the night. Gary, what the <laughs> hell am I going to say tomorrow? Ah, Neanderthal ninny. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> uh, stop your cackling cacophony. Oh, God. They were all marvelous. I love them. And, and I use them all. It taught a lot of kids big words. Shall I tell you something interesting sure. that possibly you don't know? CBS, it turns out, I must say they were very, very generous and kind to tell me this. Apparently, they did a survey. And our show was on Wednesday night, Lost in Space, Wednesday night, mm -hmm. 7.30. On Thursday, in the schools in Los Angeles, the teacher would say, who watched Lost in Space last night? And all the hands went up. And then the teacher would say, what did Dr. Smith say that you didn't understand? And the kids would say, well, he said this, and I didn't understand that. There's the dictionary. Wow. Sent them all to the dictionary. I was very proud of that. I'm sure. Because, you know, I never talked down. I played with a lot of kids mm -hmm. on stage and on screen. I never talk down to kids, ever. I talk. You don't understand me? Go to the dictionary and find out. And they did. That was very nice. Mm -hmm. That's one of the nicest things I've, that I've ever had happen to me.
because uh, the language is gorgeous and I use it and I paint it and I love the flowers of language and uh, that's been my, my thing that's what I do you see uh, we all have things that we do that we excel at mine was uh, always diction and the use of the language and a kind of style and I've used all of that for the career and it became a Jonathan Harris part isn't that nice and now I do exclusively, exclusively voice work. I hear you often. Oh, my oh, dear. I, I have just spoken for my 202nd product, the Wisconsin Lottery, 202. I've talked for pancakes and pizzas and airlines and you name it. And 3M for four years, Scotch Guard. Mm -hmm. God, that was a goodie. Oh, was that a goodie? And I do all the animated cartoons, which are my love now. You know why? I find myself working with the voice wizards of our time. They are geniuses. Gary, I can't do what they do. I can barely do me. <laughs> they are magnificent. Twelve, fifteen different voices. People like Billy West, for example. Oh, Frank Welker. Frank Welker? The genius. I mean, that's pure genius. They're wonderful. Danny Mann and Dan Castellanato, who does uh, Simpson, they're geniuses, and I get to work with them. Very impressive for me. I love it, and I do a lot of that. And I've got now a uh, problem child I did. That's on the USA Network. Mm -hmm. I'm Grandpa Healy, the grandpa from hell. I'm amazed it's on the air, Gary. I can't believe it. I'm a horror. And Junior, the kid, just as bad. Well, it's cable. I guess, but we're dreadful. The only the only nerd is the father. He's Mr. Nice, but the kid and old grandpa they're horrors. I love him, of course. He's delicious, but uh, that's on the air now. USA Networks. I enjoy that very much. We did uh, fifty three fifty three episodes of that, I guess. So that was very nice, and I've done all of that stuff, and I enjoy that. Possibly it's not as creative as standing in front of the camera or the stage, but it's creative. You have to you come up with a character which is interesting, and it's a different technique because on the screen is going to be an inanimate thing, and you've got to give it life, which means going over and above, you see. You have to. That's another technique. So it's interesting, you see. I came from the theater and had to learn film technique, which is very different. Mm. And it was an interesting juxtaposition of, of ideas and oh, how, how do you do that? But I learned to do that. And now I've learned to do the, uh, the cartoons, which are different as well. So that is very nice. Now, do you do, still do any stage work? No, I've given all of that up. Uh, I, you know, it, it was wonderful. And I was very lucky. I had wonderful parts in wonderful plays. And I'm not going to do it anymore if the hard work's too hard. Eight times a week, the same bloody thing, please. It was, and you know, we always longed for a long run because it meant you get paid every week, sure. you see. And do you think that was easy? No. I did Tea House of the August Moon for two years. And I did The Mad Woman of Shio for three years. You've got to bring freshness every night. Too. You have to. It's a responsibility. And you have to start psyching you out in the dressing room when you're putting on your face. Because those people are here for the first time. And they deserve an opening night performance, right. or as a reasonable facsimile of that. 
Now, are you mobbed by people as you're traveling around? Do people recognize you? Yes, they do. That's very nice. I'm not mobbed, because that frightens me. But I am recognizing that's very nice. Most people are quite nice. They really are. They come and say very nice things, and I appreciate that. Most people are very genteel and gentle and say, oh, thank you for such fun and whatever, and they go away. And sometimes they try to join you at dinner, which lasts about a beat and a half, <laughs> before I tell them to piss off, because <laughs> they're not supposed to do that. But it's very nice. It is very nice. And uh, once I was mobbed, and I will tell you, I was nearly killed. We all read in the papers, Gary, about so-and-so was mobbed by the fans of the clothes return, and I always yawn and say, oh, sure, mm. public relations, till it happened to me in Bangkok, in Thailand. Thailand? Yep, where the show was a monster hit. I got a telephone call uh, at the hotel from the manager of the television station that was running Lost in Space. Would I consent to doing an interview? And I said, yes. So he sent a car, and I was taken there. And uh, I was interviewed by a charming lady, if I remember correctly. She was bilingual. And when it was over, are we still all right? Oh, yes. Uh, when it was over, uh, the manager said, "This I have total recall, I warn you. Some people have heard that you're here, and they're in the courtyard. Would you wave hello? And I, oh, yes, all right. So we walked out, and up went my antenna, which are very sharp. The some people were at least 500 behind a cordon of police. <laughs> yes. So I said to this guy, into the car, please, quickly, too late. They broke through the cordon of police. Now the Thais are lovely, gentle, adoring people. And they surrounded me, screaming, Dr. Sneeze, Dr. Sneeze, I love you, I love you. And the next thing I knew, I was on the ground. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I remember. Surrounded by these loving people. Dr. Sneeze, Dr. Sneeze, I love you. I was petrified. I got turned to stone. I couldn't move. I knew, well, this is it. You've had it. The cops came to my rescue and beat them off with the batons. There was blood everywhere. Oh it was awful. Got me up and into the car. I thought they would turn the car over with love and affection. Really, I was uh, unbelievable. Finally, after about 20 minutes of that, they managed to drive off the parking lot and back to the hotel, where I can tell you took half a bottle of gin to calm my nerves. <laughs> Jeez. Wow. And from that day to this, I'm very wary of mobs. Sure. They meant me no harm, God oh. knows, but, but you know, you so can excited. die of it. Sure. You can. I was on the ground, surrounded by them. It was terrifying. Plus, I had the great... I've heard myself dubbed all over the world as Dr. Smith. It's been marvelous. What a ride. In Thailand, they do a rather strange thing. I was invited to watch a dubbing session. Oh, I said, oh, lovely, lovely. I'd like that. So I, I was taken to the studio. And what they do is they dub live. Never heard of that. They turn on the machine. The show goes on the air. The soundtrack is cut off. They stand around a central, all-directional microphone with scripts, and they do the show. <laughs> ah! I never heard anything like that in my whole life. Oh, crazy. Every time it's different. Uh, each time. <laughs> Some actor can't work, so it was another. doesn't matter. Oh, my goodness. That was terrifying. Really, the Thai language is a little strange anyway. Mm. I tried desperately to control myself, contain myself. I did, I think, and then I congratulated them all. It was awful. That's the worst thing I ever heard in my whole life. Uh, the best, are you ready? The best was the Portuguese. Really? Oh, I was in Rio 
uh, at a film festival, and I was invited to Sao Paulo to do an interview. So I went, and the man said, would you like to hear Lost in Space in the Portuguese dubbing? I said, yes. And I went into the studio and heard the Portuguese dubbing. Pretty damn good, Gary. The guy who was doing me was a very good actor. Possibly didn't have my vocal pyrotechnics, but a good actor. I knew at once, and I was delighted for that. And then I went on the air to do the interview, and the man said, I understand you've seen uh, the Portuguese dubbing, and I said, yes. What did you think? I said, oh, lovely, very good, especially the man who's doing me. He's wonderful. Oh, he said, would you like to meet him? Oh, yes, I would. Out came this lovely man, all tears, crying, and he embraced me. Uh, I said, oh, what have we here? And he said in Portuguese, which was translated, that he had dubbed Edward G. Robinson, Charles Lawton, and James Mason. And I was the best. So, of course, I said, I have heard all the dubbing all over the world, and you are the best. So we embraced again, and he cried a little more. It was absolute heaven. It's one of my memories. But that was very good dubbing. He was very good, yeah. The Japanese is strange. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> strange. Has the show made it to Russia yet? No, not as far as I know. I can tell by the mail. Because ah. I, I know at once where it's going because I get the mail. Uh, it's been all over. Uh, Russia, no. No. Uh, South America, oh, God. I'm invited to appear at Fortaleza in Brazil. I'm invited to appear in Mexico City which I'm going to do, because I uh, I love working with the orchestras for the National Symphony of Mexico, and I will narrate Peter and the Wolf and uh, Copeland's Lincoln Portrait. I've done that before with orchestras. I do like that. Not too bad, working in front of 86 pieces. I'm sure. I like that. I like that. Uh, I love music anyway. So I'm, I'm looking... Australia, the show is big, I understand. Huh? Australia. Oh, I did Australia last year, 1994, in March. I did my one-man show there. And uh, it was wonderful. God, it was good. I, I spent two weeks, and I did 23 televisions and radios to tell the people I was there. You have to do that. And then I did my one-man show at the York Theatre and sold out. And may I tell you, they took me to their hearts. And oh, boy, they made me cry. Uh, standing ovations are not easily come by. I've had a few in my time, not all that many, because people are loath to do that. And I understand it. But I got them every night in Australia. Let me tell you, it was very heartwarming. Of course, I was very good, too. <laughs> so I deserved that. And modest. And modest. Oh, it was one of my failings. Yes, the modesty is one of my failings. What about the conventions here in the U.S.? You do a lot of those. Yes, I do. And uh, they vary. They vary. Mostly, the reaction is pretty much the same. People are really wonderful. They're very nice. They're there because they want to be. Mm -hmm. You know, simple as that. Uh, the most recent one I did before this was in Los Angeles. Are you ready? There are very few in Los Angeles because, you know, it's so it's uh, Hollywood by the sea. And you want to see your favorite star, go to the corner market. Right. And he's wearing dirty jeans, too, yet. So that's very, very uh, sophisticated, so-called, pseudo. No, I don't, I don't do that number, no. I wear jogging suits, but oh, very good ones. Of course. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite attire. Always pressed. Oh, yes. Oh, doesn't everybody? <laughs> um, so I did the, uh, the Shrine Auditorium, if you please, and it was a Sunday, 
and I drew 1,600 people. And that went very well. Not as well as other places for the reason that it's Hollywood. And there are lots of crazies in Hollywood. They congregate from all over the world, Gary. There they are, asking idiotic questions because they, it's Hollywood. I get, they're auditioning. They're auditioning. Yeah, sure. Who knows who's going to give them? They're auditioning the stupid. Well, anyway. Um, so I did that, but it was very successful. And the management, or the impresario, was delighted because the charge is a pretty penny for them to come in. So I did that, and um, I do them all over. They, as I say, they vary, but overall, the reaction is pretty much the same. People are there because they want to see you. Nobody dragged them in. So it's a kind of a captive audience, Gary, as will be at the Bayside uh, uh, for the weekend. It's a captive audience. Nobody is dragging them off the street. They really want to come and see us. And they're coming from all over the country. I'm yeah. on some of the computer forums discussing Lost in Space. The Australian group is here. Really? The Texan group is here. The Connecticut group is here. They've all been writing these messages, and they're all trying to meet and do this and that. But it's amazing. I mean, there are people, and the funny part is, so many of them are saying, my wife thinks I'm crazy going to Boston for two days. But they're all coming. Yes, they are. It's really sort of gratifying, I have to tell you. It's very nice. It's very nice indeed. Tell me about this internet thing. I've heard about it, but I know nothing about it. I don't have a computer. Well, so I... uh, there's a Lost in Space page, and when you bring it what up... What does that mean, a page? A you page. press a button? Well, no, you have to type in this uh, <clears throat> www.lostinspace.something. Oh, yes. And up comes a screen, and there's a picture of the robot there, uh -huh. and then there's a whole bunch of categories. There's books, there's sound clips you can take down, there's a, and you can play it on your computer. For example, now when I hit a wrong key on my computer, you hear uh, Dick Tufeld go, that does not compute. Oh, that's wonderful. And I have another one of you calling the robot, you bubble-headed booby. Yes. And then there's the theme song on there. There's pictures. There's blueprints of the spaceship. Oh, my God. There's lists of all the different conventions. Uh, there's a whole list of all of your <laughs> robot insults. Then there's connections to other sites for people who have put their favorite Lost in Space memorabilia on the system. But that's wild. Then there's a news group where we all just type in. And I go in there two or three times a day to see what so-and-so has said. And they'll ask questions about episodes or do you have this or did you see such and such. And so we trade the world out there. Oh, there is. Oh, that's great. Oh, I've got to get a look at that. My son has a computer. I'll bet he could do that. Probably. Probably. Ah, I'd like to see that. Oh, it's really fun. Yeah. It really is. Oh, it must be. It really is. I hope you're enjoying this special, never-before-aired 1995 interview with Jonathan Harris, conducted by Gary Francis. It's a rare lost gem of Lost in Space audio history and gives us a unique view of the actor who made Dr. Zachary Smith the iconic character we all know and love. There's more Jonathan Harris to come, and afterward, we'll visit again with Gary, who's got more to share about his experience with Jonathan Harris and much more. So sit tight for part two of our special double feature, Calling Alpha Control, with Jonathan Harris and Gary Francis. But it's so many people are coming. Uh, Flint Mitchell is on the system. Oh, he's from Detroit, I believe. Yes, he is. Is he coming here? He's coming. He's yes. on a booth, as a matter of fact, at the convention. Really? Yeah. I'm looking forward to meeting Flint. I've bought so many things I've met him once. Years. Somewhere at a convention, mm -hmm. I don't know. I've been buying memorabilia from him over the years, never oh, yeah. met him yet. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Story, who owns the cockpit of the Jupiter 2, will be here. 
He has actually set it up in his basement in, in Malvern, New York. He bought the whole front piece with the three computer panels and the radar screen. Really? And he has it set up and he has pictures of it on the internet. There's somebody in Los Angeles who's got the chariot. Yes, I read about and that. And it's fallen apart. He wants to restore it. Oh, he's full, full of shit. <laughs> i tell you why. Some friends of mine came to Los Angeles and wanted to buy it from him. They offered him $5,000. And he said, no, nah, I don't want to sell it. And it was in disreputable shape. It was falling apart. Then, that was years ago. So he's done nothing with it. Isn't that awful? Now, the robot, Kevin Burns. Kevin Burns, he's here in this hotel. Well, that's what you just called That was that's just Kevin. Kevin. That's my Kevin. Oh, I would love... I'm building a full-size robot. I have the, the Japanese model that talks. Oh. I paid $85 for it 10 years ago. It's worth 400 now, they tell me. I have the original Remco model that I built when I was 14 years old. And I have a little tiny wind-up one that I found. Oh, that's but I don't I, have any. I'm going to build a full size. Uh, Clint Mitchell's coming out with a book, How to Build Your Own Lost in Space Robot. The Australians built a robot. Exactly. Exactly. I've been trying to get a hold of Kevin because I wanted to meet him and actually ask him questions about it and get a private viewing if possible so I could look at the intricacies of what I'm going to have to I'm build. I'm sure he would be agreeable. He's a wonderful man. Oh, great. Oh, he's a lovely man. Plus, he did recently a documentary called The Fantasy Worlds of Erwin Allen. Have you heard of oh, it? Oh, I've seen it 20 times. What I've about, heard about Kevin it. did that? He's the one that did that. Produced and directed and organized and collated all that material. Well, June had mentioned it to me when I had dinner with her. It was coming up. I was doing the Topsfield Fair at the time. I do fair announcing here in mm -hmm. England also. Topsfield Fair is a big country fair, one of the biggest in New England. So I was announcing it that. I raced home that night. I wanted to catch it at midnight. I sat there. The feeling in, in the pit of my stomach when the scene faded in and there was the rebuilt Jupiter 2 and the planet, it was like, oh, it was Kevin wonderful. Did it was wonderful. It was an extra, I think it was so interesting. I'll tell you something. My wife is on the fringe of showbiz. She's never involved, mm -hmm. which has been wonderful for me because she's the best critic I've ever had. Totally honest and forthright and says, that was terrible. What you, uh, okay. Well, the same way. <laughs> of course. And uh, Kevin gave me a tape of it because I don't have the cable. I've never bought the cable because I've got PBS and that suits me fine. So we watched. It took a little prodding because I don't like to look at me. Never did. And it's part of my thing. And the reason is that I want to redo it and do it better. So it gives me, it gives me distress to watch myself. And I don't like to do that and I never have. Really, I haven't seen Lost in Space for close to 30 years. Really? No way. Oh. No, no. Because I want to do it again. Better, you see. It's wrapped up good, isn't it? Oh, they <laughs> certainly do it. They don't want you to get at it. Uh, um, so it was, it lay about there for about three weeks. And finally, the old lady said, all right. Come on, put it in the VCR. So we watched it. I liked it. Oh, I did too. So did she. I found it very interesting. I had no I thought I knew Erwin pretty well and I did I had no idea of what he had done. Of all the things he had done. Plus I have to tell you, he deserved it. He gave a lot of actors a lot of work. Oh sure. Including me and I'm grateful. Whatever else about him. He deserved this. And it was a, it's a marvelous video. I've it's it's it. on sale. I've, I've already ordered it. Yeah, good. <laughs> I have it on tape, but I want it without the commercials, too. Yes.
It's a very there's very... a great scene at the end. Some of the outtakes where it's you, Bill Mooney, and the robot, <laughs> and you pull the power back out. The hands go down, and the claws fall off. Of course, the look on your face is incredible. <laughs> you are in shock that the hands fell off. Yes, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin designed that whole thing. He's, well a, he's a piece of work. Was that the original spaceship, or did they build a model of it? It's a model. Oh, it was so the good. original is like where, who, mm. what? So good. But the sand, the sand, the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, it took me back. When you walked in, it must have really taken you back. It did, it did. I hated that sand. <laughs> it was always in my shoes and in, oh. in my every, especially when Irwin had the rid of fan turned on. Oh. It, took, it took four days to put us back together. Now, the very last scene in the special, uh, because we never realized you were all of a sudden going to appear from behind the rocks mm -hmm. to see you back in character again. I thought I was 14 again. Yes, that was, was lovely. Wonderful. Yes, I enjoyed that. It was Kevin's idea. Wow, it was great. Uh, he's, he's very good. Um, I'm sure he'd love to talk. He's a marvelous man. Really? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. He's a prince. He's a very fine person. Hoping to run into him tomorrow at the convention, then. Oh, I'm sure you will. Um, I'm sure you will, and you can talk to him because he'd be delighted to talk to great. you. I'll put in a word if you like. Thank you. If you sure. would, sure. I'd love yes. it. Because I really want to build. I've been in people's houses where they have the mummies from Egypt, mm -hmm. and some people have the coats of armor. Some have the um, the uh, Knights of the Round Table type armor on display in their hall. Mm -hmm. All I want to do is build a robot and put it there. Oh, <laughs> fun. Oh, that's crazy. People think I'm crazy, but I just think it's. No, it's... no. Crazy is crazy. Joy is another thing altogether gives you joy and happiness of course you do it i mean the series has brought me so much pleasure over the years that's it i have every episode on tape mm -hmm. plus i'm buying the ones from columbia house the uncut episodes uh -huh. that are now available i'm up to number 35 i think now. Oh, oh. but it's just you know lots of times when you the stress of business and whatnot gets you you pop it in and it just brings you right back that's right it gives you comfort yes i wish i could bring myself to watch my work i can't i i don't want to I used to go to, I know exactly what I put in the camera. I'm an old hand. I know what I put in, and I know that the only thing that comes out is what you put in. I know that. But I did always go to the dailies. Always. I never missed. I was the only one. Irwin allowed me to come. Don't talk. I never did. <laughs> Just watched. It's a neat trick, the dailies. I've got to tell you. Not easy. Because the actor who goes to the dailies has to put on blinders and watch him and not check the makeup and the lights mm. but to watch him takes a little doing takes a lot of doing and I became very successful at it about 75% of the time I would really watch him the other 25 is oh that fucking makeup man I'll kill him you're wasting your time mm. and that taught me a great deal I saw exactly what had happened the day before made a little mental mm, don't do that again that's fine but to watch, uh, I watched the first run at home. We watched that every Wednesday mm -hmm. night, and never again. To see what the editors had done to the dailies, more or less. Yes, I'm interested in that too. Uh, they were very good for me, to me and for me. Of course, I had no problem with that. Uh, Irwin liked to show the scenery. He mm -hmm. loved the master shots. And the explosions. Like, fuck the actors. And, yeah. He loved the master. He did. That was. The, he felt that was the money. They all feel that's the money, mm -hmm. the scenery. And uh, George Swink, our editor, was very, very good. Yeah. But you know, there's a time problem, this pressure. I mean, this show is on the air next week, so you're going to play with it, put it together. Sure. Right? Sometimes you get sort of stuck, but I, I was very lucky. 
I was the star. What were they going to do, cut me out? Um, no, he was a very good man, George. I liked him very much, very talented. Irwin was very, are we still? Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, you'll edit uh, sensibly, oh, yes. of course. Uh, Irwin was a strange and a complex man. But I realized, only because of my vast experience, that this man had a great expertise in certain areas. And I respected that. And uh, we both knew the rules. He and I both knew the rules. He was the boss. I was the star. And that's how we played it. The special we, guest star. Oh, that was not easy. Do you want to hear that? Sure. It's a marvelous story. It's true. Every word of this is true. Of course. They keep after me to write the book, and I'm never going to do that. It's, I was lucky because it's all true. All the things that have happened are all, are all true. Yeah. Um, what was I going to tell you? The special guest star. Oh, the special guest star, yes. I got a call from my then agent, whose name Christos, forget, I forget. Uh, Irwin Allen is doing a series called Lost in Space of 20th Century Fox, and he wants to see film on you. Hmm. You know, Hollywood film. Mm -hmm. They're afraid to hire you for fear that maybe you'll fall down and won't be able to, uh, whatever. <laughs> you walk and talk and chew gum at the same time, always a good actor. So I said, hmm, what's the part? Said Mr. 10%, I don't know, fine. Mm. I said, you tell Mr. Allen that I hesitate to show him the wrong film, but I will show him the real thing, me. Oh, he's not going to like that. And I said, fuck him. Simple as that. I don't show film unless I'm sure. Mm. I know the part that they're looking for, and I have that part on a piece of film. I will show that film. That's been my rule. Otherwise, I don't show the film. You lose the job. Why show them something that's totally You lose the job. I want the job, right. So uh, he called back in 20 minutes, and he said, Alan wants to know who the hell you think you are, and he'll see you at 4 o'clock. This is total recall, baby. So I went at 4 o'clock to 20th Century Fox, my favorite movie studio, because I had started my Hollywood television career at Fox in The Third Man. Love that lot. Big lot, full of movie stars. Ah, I was like an idiot kid, always about it. I found my way to Irwin's office. I was ushered into the the presence, and there he was, huge desk, surrounded by all the yes-men. The head yes-man was Frank Lauterette, a lovely man, very nice man, turned out. So I was, of course, nervous. I was. I said, good afternoon, gentlemen. And Irwin said, who the hell do you think you are? No film. That was in lieu of hello. Mm. So I said, well, Mr. Allen, I wouldn't like to show you the wrong film. I prefer to show you the real thing, me. And he turned to Frank Lauterette, the head yes-man, and said, What did he say, Lauterette? And Lauterette said, He doesn't want to show you the wrong film. I said to myself, What, what is this? <laughs> Didn't he, is he deaf? Didn't he? <laughs> Couldn't figure it out. Then he said, You want to be in this series? I was doing this, <laughs> scaring the shit out of me. He really was. I said, Well, uh, I don't know, Mr. Allen. I haven't read a script. What did he say, Lauterin? <laughs> Hasn't read a script. Somebody give him a script. Somebody did. I had a script. I couldn't. What, what is this? <laughs> I'd never had this experience in my whole life. Then he turned to the casting man, who was also in the office. And he said, sign him up and don't pay him too much money. <laughs> I quickly changed that. <laughs> but I'm standing there. Like, I think I was shaking because what is this? I mean, what? This man's crazy. 
Then he said, always with the finger. I suppose you want billing? So I saw Mr. Allen, it's customary for an actor of my stature to get proper billing on the screen. What did he say, Lotteret? <laughs> he wants billing. Irwin <laughs> said, listen, I've already done the pilot. You weren't in it. Your character wasn't in it. They're all signed, sealed, and delivered. You have to be last. So I said, oh, may I know who the other actors are? So he told me, and I said, that's very nice, but I don't believe I would be comfortable in last position. What did he say, Lazarus? <laughs> Doesn't want to be last. <laughs> Irwin said, listen to me, the finger. You go home, and you figure it out, and you call me up, get out. All charm. I staggered. Gary, I staggered out of that office. What the hell? had the script, went home, read the script. Now, I've got pretty good antenna. I said, oh, oh, oh this is a goodie. Last billing. I ain't going to be happy with that. Last billing? Hmm. I want to do the show. Can't tamper with other actors' billing. Of course not. It's unethical. You don't, unprofessional, you don't do that. Last billing? Well, if I want to do the show, I have to take last billing. Some sort of special last billing, I think. Hmm. So I called a friend of mine who was head of casting at NBC. I'd done maybe about 400 series. I said, did you ever give a regular member of a series special guest star billing? He said, are you kidding? Of course not. Of course not. A regular? No way. I would never do that. Never have, never will. I said, that's all I need to know. Called Irwin back. And I said, I've solved the billing problem. What? Snap. I said, I will accept last position. Special guest star every week. Well, the next 20 minutes should have been recorded. <laughs> the scream. Well, fucking actors, none of you can act anyway. You're fucking actors. I'll pay to my fucking ass. I didn't open my mouth. 20 minutes this went on. And went on and on until he lost his breath and said, Okay, hung up. <laughs> that was it. And it worked. First and only time. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, billing is total madness. Mm. Total crazy, the billing. Uh, but that was the first of his kind. Mm. <laughs> I was kind of proud of that. Oh, he was funny. I mean, he did funny things, but he was not funny. He had no humor, but he did funny things like that. I mean, 20 minutes of howling, screaming. You're all no good. You can't fucking act anyway. Anyway, too much trouble. Who needs you? Okay. <laughs> it's a lovely story. It's true. Sounds like you had a great acting career. Huh? Really, it sounds like you had a great career. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. I've been lucky. I'm lucky. Yeah. Do you realize, I sometimes think of it and I'm, I'm almost shocked I made my Broadway debut in 1942, and I have never stopped working. That's great. Talk about luck. There's one part that you should Boy. be in. And I've said this from the day one, although I have to say the person who is doing it, Ray Walston, does a great job. He's but, my road company. But Judge Harry Bone oh, he's on very picket good. fences, oh, he's very you good. would be great at that. Yeah. 
Ray's very good. Oh, what I could see was you, be you as a special guest star in Picket Fences as a visiting judge. Oh, you I'm and him gonna... together would be great. I don't want to do any of that. No? No, more, no, no. I've done 612 films, guys. Uh-huh. And I'm not going to do any more. No more. No, 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 no. I have no patience with it anymore. I have no patience with the people who are in it. The mumbling, fumbling, stupid jerks who don't deserve a job and can't talk and are not prepared. I'm sorry. My My... Discipline and my training is is very different from that. The inevitable final question. Yes. The upcoming Lost in Space movie. I know very little about it. Are you disappointed that the original actors aren't going to be used? No. I never expected they would be. Never. I'm an old hand, Gary. I know all the rules. New Line bought it, and I knew at once that that was the end of that. I mean, they would update it, probably screw it up beyond belief. Mm -hmm. No doubt. Um... And I never thought for a minute that I would be in it. Nor do I want to. My interest is very minimal. I don't like going backwards. I've done it. I was disappointed at the comic book that came out, that right away they changed the spaceship, they changed the robot, they changed the whole flavor of the characters. Sorry. The the joy of Lost in Space is what it was, what you saw. You start to mess with that. It's the old professional story. Don't tamper with success. And it takes a very strong hand to observe that. Don't tamper with success. And you made it successful. The point is that it was a success for whatever reasons. If I was involved in that, that's fine. But that's what Lost in Space was. You begin to tamper with that, it becomes... Don't call it Lost in Space. As they did with Batman. They took a campy uh, TV series and made it into a very dark movie. Yes, and they made nothing they made but billions of That's dollars. True. That's true. Uh, I don't know whether New Line is ever going to do the movie. Mm. They've hired, uh, I know this, they've got a writer and they paid him a million too. Wow. That's a fact. And the story is that he's done five rewrites already. The first three, I was told, but I hesitate to believe this, the first three involve the original cast. Oh. The second two are total different thing. Uh, will it be done? How do I know? It's Hollywood. So, well, big deal. They paid a million dollars to Sheila Allen and a million dollars for the script. We'll write it off. What's the problem? No problem. Years ago, I came up with a final episode for the series. Oh, tell. I, well, you take off from a planet, you're flying through space, go through another media storm type of thing, have no clue where you are, all of a sudden, you get trapped in some kind of a gravitational pull. Now, the ship is old by now. It crash lands on a planet. And you're in a snowy area. And the ship is destroyed this time. To the fe- You know it will never take off again. And it's a, a two-hour uh, episode. And the family is trying to figure out where they are on the mountain. Well, finally, at the very end of the episode, it turns out they crash landed in the Andes. Back on Earth. Ah. It would have closed up all the loose ends. Yes, yes. The ways of networks are very okay. strange. We were left, you know, in the middle I know. of... Uh, you know how that I found out? It's very interesting. I was in New York at the time for CBS. And uh, I was sent to the Regency Hotel in a gorgeous suite, and there was champagne and luggage and gifts. And, uh, very, in those days, oh, boy. With the limousines left and right. So I looked at the card that it came from Tom something or other at CBS. I have manners, so I called him to thank him for all the goodies. I mean, the really goodies. Mm-hmm. Dom Perignon champagne oh. and Louis Vuitton luggage. Oh. Oh. 
and candy and stuff. I got him on the phone. Oh, I said, thank you very much. Lovely of you, too. Oh, he said, it's our pleasure. Uh, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, I'm free, as far as I know. Oh, let's lunch tomorrow. I said, fine, fine, I'd love to. He said, call me in the morning. We'll arrange to meet. Uh, you like La Cirque? I love it. Oh, we'll go there. Fine, fine, fine. Okay. The next morning, my coffee is brought up with the New York Times. Where do I turn? To Jack Gould, the television section. Big streamer, lost in space, canceled. I just sat there. And all I could think of was, you son of a bitch, Tom. You must have known. Of course he PSI didn't call him. He knew. He was fired, by the way. He wrong choice. He made a wrong choice. He was instrumental. Should have... We had another year, you see. Now, the story is, I've heard various stories why we were cancelled. The story that seems to make sense now is that the network and the studio wanted to cut Irwin's budget. Too much money. Spending too much money. They wanted to lop it off. And he said, that was the end of it. And they cancelled it. That's what seems to make sense. Because Irwin was like that. They didn't have the foresight to realize they would make it up in syndication oh, for 30 years. Gary, what are you talking Who in about? television has foresight, even no. today? You know, I'll tell you a marvelous story, and it's true. Brandon Tartikoff, who was head of NBC television for years and made many big successes, was interviewed. And he was asked, Mr. Tartikoff, tell us about television. And he said, and this is true, um... I don't know anything about television. Nobody does. Absolutely true. And he was the only one who would admit it. Admit it. Exactly. Because really they know nothing. They make the same idiot mistakes, Gary, year after year. A hundred pilots, they cost billions of dollars. Twenty get on, one emerges because they're so stupid. They don't know what they're doing. Purely by accident, something hits. Very interesting to observe this, you see, because we're at their mercy. You mentioned the PBS. Is yeah. That you watch mostly on television. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, yes, I love it. Favorite shows? Uh, mystery. I love mystery. I love Masterpiece Theater. Never miss it. Uh, McNeil Lair, which is now just Jim Lehrer. Right. Because it's insightful. That's why I never got the cable. It's, it serves all my needs. Sure. Metropolitan Opera Broadcast. Mm -hmm. uh, the Ballet. American Playhouse. What else do I need? What about the BBC comedies? Are you being served? I saw it last night. Isn't that a great show? We had one whole, <laughs> we had one whole run of it. Oh. I, I, I got sick from laughing. Oh, it's great. And I haven't seen it for years. I'm flipping. I, got, I find number two. No, number two yes. is PBS. Yep. It's How You're Being Served. Twice a night it's on. Mrs. Slocum. <laughs> Mr. Umphreys. Yeah. Mr. Granger. Captain Peacock. Miss Brown. God, I can't show. believe it. It's so terrible. It's so wonderful. 7.30 at night and 11 at night it's on. Oh, God. And 11. And 11, yes. Oh, it's heaven. Mr. Humphreys, it's heaven. Oh, they're wonderful. They're all wonderful. I love Mrs. Slocum. She's such a hoot. You never know what Different color her hair is going to be. Yep. Purple, yep. blue, yep. green. Oh, last night it was sort of blondish. It's a great And scene. the lashes do. Yep. Oh, she's a piece of work. 
Campsville, USA. Mr. Humphreys comes to, well, the actor comes to Boston all the time for the PBS fundraising. You're kidding. He does. Oh, he's a wonderful. He'll be here, I think, next week, as a matter of fact. Oh, I wish he was here this week. Uh, I'd love to meet him and congratulate him. And Captain Pete. <laughs> oh, God. And uh, young Mr. Grace. Yep. Oh, it must be 110 if 110, he's a day. young Mr. Grace. But always has a young nurse. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, it's a wonderful show. Wonderful. And, of course, the Forty Towers. Uh, yes. John Cleese. He must have been so tired after every scene. Genius. Our genius, John Cleese. I've seen that about three times. My favorite of all the masterpieces there is upside, uh, upside down. Upside. Upstairs, downstairs. Yes. And number two, I, Claudius. Mm-hmm. Derek Jacobi. Mm-hmm. Sean Phillips. Oh, this wonderful actor. They're wonderful. We have wonderful actors, too. I think possibly they have more mm-hmm. wonderful actors. Better producers, because the producers will put more into the series, I think. Could be, because... They want to turn them out too quick in this country. Well, you see, here we are so involved with perfection, mustn't see a Mike shadow. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, so there's a little shadow on the leading lady's face, big deal. They don't things, care about do that. Things do get by, though, even in this country. Uh, lately. Well, man. even in the 60s, there's a scene in Lost in Space where you can see Bob May's feet sticking there's out of one the bottom. Sh- what's the name of that segment? It's the one... I uh, never saw that, but I heard that... It's it, the one where you uh, became very, very old and Will became a genius. Oh, yes, yes, yes. First season. Uncle Thaddeus. Yes. I got a picture of him with all yes. great makeup. Yes. Dick Hamilton did it. Well, the makeup was wonderful. Dick Hamilton was They're genius. The genius is not us. We learn the lines somebody else has written. We learn the lines that we stand up there and say them. The geniuses are the technicians, the makeup. Oh, but in your case, no one could deliver the lines the way you did. Well, it was one of those happy things that happened. I heard at one point that Carol O'Connor was one of the possibilities. Yeah, Aaron thought of that. He could never have delivered not the lines. Not in a million years. Did, no, never. Not at all. He would have been a whole different mm. thing. And it wouldn't have lasted, probably. Probably not. It has been said, I say with some undue modesty, that uh, without Mr. Harris, it would have been off the air in ten weeks. Possible. That's one of the things that has been said. It's neither here nor there. The point is, I know from my own experience that in a series, of which I've done many, the audience will latch on to something or somebody or the thing is going to be a bomb. In my case, in Lost in Space case, it was me with the robot, and aided and abetted by Billy Mooney, mm-hmm. and that's what happened. That's what happened. Without it, it would have died, because the audience latches on to a particular thing, uh, and that's that's what makes it work. You see, uh, and it's wonderful because you get paid every week, and you you go to work and you practice your craft. You know, actors have to act, and if you don't act, you're really you're only half an actor. And that's that's a, a trouble for a lot, a lot of young actors because there's no place for them to get the experience that they need in the background. We're almost out of tape. Let's do our closing. Yeah. And, uh, pleasure, Jonathan, uh, meeting you today, and okay. uh, we thank you so much for coming to Boston to Always see everybody. And uh, we hope to uh, see you again in five more years for the 35th anniversary. Well, I'll be in my wheelchair. Or on my crutch, <laughs> God forbid. But wouldn't that be nice? The 35th anniversary? Oh, my, my. That would really be an event. Although I think this is an event, too, 30 years. Sure. It's no uh, chop liver, as we say. Right. 30 years, by God. And Saturday and Sunday will all be there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gary. 
One more thing now, if we could, while it's still running. Could I have you do a drop for me? Yes. Hi, this is Jonathan Harris, Dr. Smith from Lost in Space, and you're listening to Gary Francis. Mm -hmm. Hello, this is Jonathan Harris, probably better known to you as Dr. Smith from Lost in Space, and I'm chatting with Gary Francis, an old friend. Thank you very much. Wow, that is really something. Well done, sir. Well played. I just love that you were able to get that drop from him right at the end before your tape ran out. And I still use that now on radio. I do an oldies show. I'm pretty much retired from radio. I do uh, some voiceovers. Uh, I work with a painter from California named uh, Kevin Hill. Kevin is an oil painter, and he's Mm -hmm. on a lot of PBS television stations. 22 years old, and he's a great painter. I actually do his some of his voiceover work. Then I also do, uh, there's a local uh, priest who uh, goes all over the country doing retreats. And uh, he's written quite a few books. And uh, I do his voice on tape uh, books for him. Oh, great. But uh, otherwise, I'm retired from radio, except on Saturday nights. I do a show on uh, Cool 94.1 WXBJ in Salisbury, Massachusetts, called the Saturday Night Sock Hop. And it is a recreation of a 19... Uh, 50s radio show and 1950s 1960s and we even have the old echo as a matter of fact if i reach over here to the processing rack oh wow press this button here now i have echo in the background and i sound like i did back in the 1950s ah that's great well i could tell listening to your voice now and then listening to that interview from wow just about 30 years ago that uh, you're definitely a pro I would have been so nervous, though, because you said right off the bat you're in the presence of one of your childhood <laughs> heroes. Did you, And he picked right up on that. Yes, he did. He did. Did you feel like you were in the presence of oh, a I did. I did. larger-than-life I mean, character? There was nobody else. I mean, I've, I've met Jay Leno many times because Jay grew up 10 miles away from me in Andover, Massachusetts. There's so many people I've met over the years. Uh, I was at a reunion back about maybe 12 years ago with Luke Halpin and Tommy Norden, who were the two kids uh, from the TV show Flipper. And, oh, wow. Uh, that was another show that was on at the same time as Lost in Space uh, sure. back I in the mid-60s. Flipper. No, Jonathan, he was the one. I mean, he was definitely uh, the high point of my interviews, definitely. Oh, well, gosh, I've listened to this recording, I think, at least six or seven times now, and it's just fantastic. And there are several anecdotes that he tells that I've heard him tell in other interviews, but there's a lot of new material in here. For example, that whole bit about Rod Serling. I never knew that. But, you know, I have to say, even the parts that I've heard before, he had such an engaging manner. It really is a captivating interview to listen to. Mm -hmm. I just enjoyed it so much. Well, you know, lots of people I've interviewed over the years, they never call you by name. They'll just, you know, because they're doing the same interview they do all the time. Jonathan kept mentioning me by name. Exactly. direct eye contact with me the whole time, too. I noticed that and picked up on it right away. There was something that made me think there was kind of a real connection here, that he was really warming up to you a lot. So I thought that was wonderful. But I can't help but ask this question. This is no dig on Jonathan Harris. But part of me, even though it seems so natural, I thought, is he still sort of in a performance mode? Or did you... Did you get that vibe at all or not? Not really, no. I really didn't. And, of course, I've met him many times after that interview because Mm. I went to the 1998 uh, premiere in California of the movie. Don't even get me started on that. But Mm. I went to the convention that Gary Summers had produced out there. It was not well attended, unfortunately. But the fortunate thing for those of us who went 
is we got to just hang with the cast for three days. And it was you know, maybe 300 people plus the cast. And it was such a one-on-one thing. And I got to have dinner with Jonathan. We actually, uh, I believe Kevin set it up. We went to um, uh, Lowry's restaurant, the prime oh. rib place. Okay. And uh, Kevin had invited a few more people, including Al Lewis. Really? Grandpa oh, Munster. Was that ever an experience at dinner? <laughs> I felt bad for the waitresses because oh, my God. Al Lewis uh, never met a young lady, he, even an old lady, that he didn't want to take home with him, I don't think. Another colorful character. <laughs> oh, two yes. for one. Oh, oh, yeah. That's great. Well, I, I wanted to ask you this while I'm thinking about it. Was there any pre or post recording conversation that you had that was worth mentioning? Not really. I mean, I started the recording pretty early on. Of course, when I mm-hmm. went in, I did give him a, a welcoming gift, welcome to Boston. Sure. Uh, because in those days, besides the ice cream shops, I also had a candy store, and we made homemade fudge. And I gave Jonathan a pound of panucci and a pound of chocolate fudge. Oh. And he, uh, he called me about a week later after uh, the convention, and he said, that fudge is fantastic. Keep sending it. <laughs> <laughs> and at the convention in Los Angeles, when he spotted me in the audience, he stopped where he was and he goes, see that man over there? He makes the best fudge in the world. Buy it. <laughs> <laughs> and I had all these phone calls when I got back of people wanting fudge. But oh. I would send it to him maybe once a month or so. And he would tell me, make sure you don't put the name of the company on the outside. I don't want Gertrude to know I have it. She'll take it away from me. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, Well, he's a bit of an Epicurean gourmet in real life, you know, just like uh, Dr. Smith. Well, again, I'm trying to imagine what it was like sitting across from from Jonathan Harris doing the interview. The thing I notice about watching all these episodes of Lost in Space and, and seeing him in other performances is, as an actor, he had a brilliant command of his physical mannerisms. Do you remember anything in particular about the way he carried himself, or were there any particular facial or hand gestures that stood out at the time? No, he seemed very relaxed. Uh, it was like we had known each other forever. Uh, the minute that's great. I walked in, it's just like we have been good friends our whole lives. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's also clear that there's a little bit of uh, Jonathan Harris and Dr. Smith and maybe a little Dr. Smith and Jonathan Harris because, I think so. you know, he's not shy about mentioning <laughs> his own uh, greatness or whatever. Oh, you, you like, he knew. He knew. He, he knew. And he, I mean, come on, let's admit it. I mean, he did really kind of make that show. I don't think it would have survived without him. Well, there's one but, line in the interview, I believe, where he says, uh, uh, they, they signed me up for so much money, but I took care of that real soon. <laughs> Or something to that effect. Yeah. You can be sure of that. Oh, yes. (laughs) And even though sometimes when people are like that, it can be off-putting, there's something charming about the way he does it. Because he always manages to kind of say, you know, people tell me I still look very young. (laughs) Well, at the beginning of the interview, I told him, you know, I said, you haven't aged hardly. He goes, oh, the lighting in this room is very good. Yeah. (laughs) I, I I would best describe him as a charming rascal. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's great. Well, again, it's such a nice long interview. I can't imagine that there would be. Was there any question that you didn't ask him now that you wish you had at the time? Can you think of anything? No, not really, because we kept in touch after that. Uh, Sure. Two or three times I would get a phone call, actually in the daytime, from Kevin Burns. 
And uh, he'd ask me a question about something. He'd go, oh, by the way, Jonathan is here in the office. You want to talk to him? Of course I want to talk to him. And he'd come on the phone. (laughs) And I I think poor Kevin, if anybody was trying to put a call through to Kevin's desk, he wouldn't get it because Jonathan and I would stay on the phone for 10 to 15 minutes then. That must be why Kevin could do such a good Jonathan Harris impersonation himself. He spent a lot of time with Jonathan. Oh, he did. He did. He definitely did. But uh, I have all the letters that Jonathan ever wrote me. And, of course, Jonathan answered every letter that went to his house. And he answered them all in longhand. Amazing. Wow. I have probably 10 years worth of Christmas cards from him. Yeah, that's great. Well, you must feel very blessed again to have had the opportunity to meet and speak and spend so much time with one of your childhood heroes. I'm really jealous. It's a shame. I think he left us too soon. Oh, he did. Definitely. Yeah. And for my money, I mean, maybe this will be a little bit controversial to some people out there. I don't think it will be to most of our listeners, but uh, there'll never be another Dr. Smith other than Jonathan Harris for oh, me. No, I don't. Not at all. Not at all. Yes. No, the movie messed it up completely. I mean, that was just a disaster from the first frame right through to the last frame. Right. And then uh, the TV show, I've only watched four episodes of the new Netflix show, believe it or not. I've tried to get into it, and I just... I can't seem to get past the fourth episode. Yeah, well, it's not for everybody. And like Kevin says, we always have the original. Right. You know, it's not a replacement for the original for me, but I did enjoy it. My wife and I both enjoyed it, but we we treat it as something completely different from Mm -hmm. Lost in Space as we know it. And of course, one thing very unique about Lost in Space is the music. Uh, I mean, that music, you don't find a producer today spending the kind of money that Irwin must have spent on having uh, Johnny Williams uh, do that sc- those scores because uh, it's brilliant. just not done anymore nowadays. They're brilliant. One of the things I learned, and I'm sure you have the soundtrack collection as well, but did you know that when they recorded the music for Lost in Space, because I interviewed the soundtrack producer, yes. they were only using about 18 to 20 oh, yeah. pieces. It's not a full orchestra, no. but it has such a rich sound to mm-hmm. it. You would swear it was like a 90-piece orchestra. Exactly, exactly. It's beautiful. Getting back to the fantasy worlds of Irwin Allen, there is a a little bit of uh, something there that no one knows about. Now, my second favorite TV show from that era was Green Acres. Oh, Green Acres. (laughs) And I mentioned that to Kevin Burns one day, and he goes, you know something? I've never told anybody this, he said. But where the Jupiter 2 was positioned for the fantasy worlds of Irwin Allen is exactly where the Green Acres farmhouse was. They used those studios because those are now uh, General Service Studios, and that's the studio he rented. But the Jupiter 2 set was standing for that episode of Fantasy Worlds is exactly where the the Douglas's farmhouse was. Oh, wow. I'll never forget Mr. Haney would always show up at just the right moment. (laughs) Yes, yes. And he'd always have the sign all ready to pull down with the exact right wording on it. Exactly. Oh, I love those shows. They just don't do TV like that anymore. No, they anymore. don't. They don't. Not at it's all. It's great. So you and Kevin Burns still communicate and keep up with each other? We haven't uh, as often as I would like to. Of course, he's very busy now. I mean, between sure. Lost in Space uh, for Netflix and uh, Curse of Oak Island, and uh, he's still a very prolific uh, documentary producer, so he's very, very busy. But we did speak uh, at length uh, just before the Netflix series came out. 
and uh, he had filled me in on a lot of the details about it and whatnot. And uh, well, I'm sure you agree with me that Lost in Space fans everywhere owe him a big debt of gratitude for keeping this property alive and well. Oh yes, it's just so wonderful that we have the Blu-rays and now we've got the new widescreen uh, DVDs that have just come out. My hats off to him. I just really appreciate everything he's done for Lost in Space fans. But what I still have in my collection now, I have every size robot that ever came out, except for the full-size one now. But I have the Spencer Gifts Christmas tree ornament. I have the little tiny robots. I have the medium-sized robots. I have the Masudea 18-inch robot, also the Robbie 18-inch robot. Oh, wow. Uh, Or maybe it's 24-inch. They're they're big. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I have the original Polar Lights kit that I built in 1965. I've got a half dozen of the unopened boxes of the Polar Lights ones. Wow. Uh, the Remco? You got the Remco? I do not have the Remco, no. I had the chance to pick one up about 10 years ago, dirt cheap, but she didn't have the box. Mm. And so I wasn't interested. Wow. But uh, let's see, what else do I have? I have the ties. They came out with Lost in Space ties in 1998. And I still have one of those. Two of those, I think, as a matter of fact. I've got, um, let me see what else. I have the original soundtrack that uh, La La Land Records came out with. That was Lala Crescendo. Then sure. I have the most recent one, the big box set. Yes. And then I have yes. the newer one that came out after that. Let's see what else. I have the uh, VHS from Columbia House. I have the original DVDs, which were made from the same master as the Columbia House, so the quality was... Eh. And then I have the uh, Blu-rays, and then I have the uh, widescreens from uh, from Amazon and Walmart. So yeah, I've uh, I've got a good collection of stuff. Wow. And I have an original script of the movie, by the way, because I saw that long before it even was uh, put in front of the cameras. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow. Gary, you're something else. That is awesome. Let me ask you a question, Lane, by the way. Sure. On, in the, uh, the, uh, one of the sets of, um, of music, there is a theme that Irwin had commissioned for the second season. Yes. You've heard that, right? Yes. Yes. What did you think of that? It just didn't do it for me. Oh, Sorry. I hated it. I hated it. Uh, I couldn't picture that being a theme for no, Lost in Space. I thought it was the worst piece of music I ever heard. It yeah. was just so, uh, it was too comedic. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that was taking it a bit too far. No, I think they made the right decision. I love both the themes. Of course, they just re-recorded the first season theme to right. use during season two. And then, of course, Irwin brought John Williams back in to do a reimagined theme for season three. Do you have a favorite of the uh, two themes? I think, I well, originally I liked season one and two. And then I think my overall favorite would be season three. Season three, season okay. Season three, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you're absolutely right. The music oftentimes made the show. Oh, yes. And some of the monsters might not have been quite as frightening because cbs you know is constantly telling them hey tone it down tone it down you're scaring the kids but that music really sold it and of course when you can see the zipper on the costume that's not a good thing that that didn't help no it didn't work it didn't work well (laughs) well we've talked quite a bit about this interview and your love of lost in space i want to ask you about your other career you mentioned at the beginning that you're in the ice cream business what can you tell us about gary's homemade ice cream well we've been around since 1973 although i've been in the ice cream business since 68. I started doing it when I was a freshman in high school working for a gentleman in Lowell, Massachusetts, who uh, originated the roadside ice cream stand concept, John Glennie. He Mm -hmm. had a chain of five stores called Glennie's Ice Cream. 
And then uh, I kind of got interested in it. I was in radio at the time also. My father never thought radio was a real career. Now, even though I was working in Boston and making twice the amount of money he was making, and he was running a construction company, he didn't think it was a real job. Ah, you play records for three hours a day. That's not a real job. So he was right, though, because you didn't have any kind of uh, guarantee in radio. You're, you know, you're the top of the heap one day, and the next day you're out and somebody else has your, yeah. has your air shift. What happened was he found an ice cream shop for sale. It was a tiny little place with parking for five cars, and uh, he inquired about it. He bought it, and uh, he goes, okay, now you got a real job. And when we bought it, there was an ice cream-making machine in the building, although it hadn't been used in years. It was made in the 1930s. We got it up and running. We started uh, about a month after we opened. We first opened buying ice cream from another company. And then starting in late 73, we started to make our own, and we have now made our own ice cream for 47 years. Wow. At one point, I had eight stores, but now that I'm getting older, I'm down just to the original store, which as we are talking, I am looking out the window. I'm on the second floor in my recording studio, and I'm looking out the window at the ice cream shop, actually. It's right next door. I I bought the house next to it about (laughs) four years after I started the company. Now I'm actually considered the senior ice cream guy in New England. Nobody else has been in business as long as I have. Now let me qualify that. There are companies that have been around 60 or 70 years, but they've Mm. either changed hands or they're in a different generation. Whereas I opened this store on August 9th, 1973, and I still work there, open to close from March 1st until Columbus Day. Right. And I still, to this day, am the guy that makes all the ice cream and the hot fudge and cooks all the fruits. And we do everything from scratch, which nobody else practically does in the country anymore. Now, do you keep your uh, recipes under double lock and key, or how does that work? Well, I did, you know, for a long time. It was all hush-hush and top secret. But now I have another company called IceCreamCollege.com. And I actually now have people who come to a seminar in Florida once a year. Or they'll come here to the shop in Massachusetts, and they'll spend a week with me, and I will teach them how to design a store, equip a store, open a store, how to make the ice cream, how to wait on the customers, how to set up your accounting, your bookkeeping, everything. Wow. So uh, that's my uh, that's what the business has kind of evolved into now. But we still sell a lot of ice cream. Now, today, here, for example, the day we're recording this, it's early March. It's, uh, let's see, 21 degrees was the high temperature today. And we still, we still had a busy day today. We just oh, opened yeah. a week ago. A week ago uh, today, actually, we opened. Yeah, the seasonal ice cream shop in our area, March 1st seems to be the magic that day. That is the magic the, day, yes, it is. And then do they close down when? And uh, We close down you, Columbus Day. Columbus Day, right. Okay. Well, you know, I got to tell you a funny thing. My wife and I, if we have a vice, we both love ice cream. And so when I told her <laughs> that you were in the ice cream business, she's like, what? How can I? She's on your website. She's looking at everything. Look at all these great flavors and everything. But the <laughs> but the rub is, and my wife will always just gives me holy grief about this. Whenever we, <laughs> whenever we go to order ice cream, I'll look at them. I say, God, that flavor looks good. But I inevitably always wind up getting vanilla, <laughs> and she just gives me so much. You're gonna get vanilla, and I I said. That's what I like. Well, you know, vanilla gets short shrift from too many people. Vanilla is one of the most complex flavors there is. There's 321 flavor notes in vanilla. Would you please tell my wife that? She thinks I'm so boring. (laughs) Now, one thing we do that no one else around here does, uh, we make a pure white vanilla. 
most vanilla ice cream actually has a, a product called egg shade, which is a certain shade of yellow food coloring added to it to give it the look of what they call fresh cream. But there's uh, no need to do that. Now, if you're old enough to remember Howard Johnson's, or if any of your listeners remember Howard Johnson's, oh, I remember it. Yes, they made yes. a pure white ice cream. And so did uh, Brigham's Ice Cream, which was a New England company here. And we followed that uh, lead all the way through because we've never added yellow food coloring to our vanilla. It's just pure vanilla extract, which, by the way, is now one of the most expensive extracts there is. Vanilla for years was like $88 a gallon. Now it's up close to $900 a gallon. Yeah, and you were telling me when we talked offline earlier this month that uh, you had just ordered your vanilla, uh-huh. and, it's, and it's a, it has to come from a very special place. Yes, um, we use a Madagascar vanilla. Uh, it's a double fold. You, a Mexican vanilla is more for baking, and a Tahitian vanilla is more for cooking. But uh, for ice cream, where you're going to uh, disperse it in, the, in a cold medium, you want to use a Madagascar vanilla. And unfortunately, there was cyclones that wiped out the uh, vanilla plantations a few years ago. And this year, they actually have a good crop. But oh, the good. forecast for next year is going to be the worst crop in history. Oh boy! So does it keep? Do you, does it keep? I mean, can you can you store up more than a year's supply if you need like to? Like a very good wine, the older a vanilla is, the better it is. So at one point, I actually bought like a pallet of vanilla, and that lasted me for five years, and I used up the end of that last year. Oh, I see. So that's oh, why I wow. had to go out this year and spend so much money for vanilla. Two thousand dollars a case when you add the shipping in. Amazing. Well, you will be seeing me and my wife uh, in the very near future. We're not going to miss your season. I'm, I'm making that a priority for us to get up to the Boston area and come visit Gary's Ice Cream. I'm, I'm salivating at the thought. Well, if you do that, you're also going to get a Lost in Space tie. Oh, okay. Well, bonus. There you go. There you go. <laughs> oh, wow. And by the way, any of your listeners are welcome to come by the shop, and I'll be glad to talk Lost in Space with them for hours. I can attest to that. (laughs) Matter of fact, we actually, um, I had a shop in downtown Lowell, which is the next city over, city I was born in, and that was the only shop I had that wasn't strictly takeout. The shop I have now and almost all the others were the walk-up-to-the-window type of store. Mm -hmm. But I did have one store that uh, we actually sold hamburgers and hot dogs, and we had chairs you could sit down. And we uh, used to have Lost in Space Friday nights. We had people who actually would travel 20 and 30 miles. We had this big screen TV in the store. I called Kevin Burns, and I cleared it all with Kevin. That it was okay to sure. do. We would actually uh, show a Lost in Space episode every week. So one week, I called Mark Goddard, because Mark only lives like 35, 40 miles away from me. And I said, Mark, can you come to a personal appearance? I'll bring the robot to the store. And he goes, sure, I can do that. So he did. He brought pictures down to sign for people. My friend Paul Johansson, who lives a couple of miles away from me, Paul actually made some of the Burroughs consoles. He made perfect replicas of those consoles. Mm. And uh, he brought one of those down, and we had that at the window. And Mark recreated, matter of fact, I'll send you the picture. Mark recreated the photo of him standing at the console holding the microphone. Oh, wow. I got to see that. Except he's not wearing a silver spacesuit in this one. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we had Mark there, and we had about 200 people who came. We didn't do a lot of advertising for it. We just did local advertising, and uh, folks came down to meet Mark, and uh, they were thrilled. Oh, it sounds like a great time. Great tradition. Your current shop, though, the one that you have now is in uh, Chelmsford? Chelmsford, Massachusetts. Yeah, it's called okay. Gary, Gary's Ice Cream. 
and uh, folks are, are welcome to come and see it. And they're welcome to stop by. I'll be glad to talk Lost in Space with them. They can also catch me on uh, 20 and 40 meters uh, if they happen to be a ham radio operator, which I also am. W1GFF is my call sign, Whiskey One Golf Fox Fox. And, awesome. And uh, they are more than welcome to uh, you know catch me on the, uh, on the high-frequency bands. I'll be glad to talk to them. Oh, that's great. And talk Lost in Space. Of course. Of course. We have nets about everything else. We may as well have a Lost in Space net. Oh, that's great, Gary. Wow. This has been so great. And I guess I just want to thank you again so much for sharing this interview. I cannot believe, you know, the one thing I forgot to ask you now that I'm thinking about it is how did this stay lost for so long? You know, I actually lost it for a while. Now here in the studio, uh, this is where I do my voiceover work and I've got one, two, three, four, five, eight computers in this room. And that's just part of the network. I mean, there's more downstairs, and there's more in my mm. art studio. But, you know, we, every time I get a new computer, it, another one gets kind of slid down the line. And uh, this got lost. And one day I was lo- wondering why one of the hard drives was so full. And I started going through the directory, and I said, oh, there's the Dr. Smith interview. So that was about five years ago. I rediscovered it and listened to it and just thought, oh, this is hilarious. It's wonderful. Then... uh I had heard about the Alpha Control podcast, and I hadn't listened to it. And then all of a sudden, I, I about a year ago, I started really getting into podcasts. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. now uh, there's quite a few I listen to on a regular basis. And of course, yours. I look forward to yours coming out every week or two. And I said to myself, you know, I wonder if he would be interested in the Jonathan interview, because unfortunately, <laughs> Jonathan is no longer with us, so there's no way to uh, do a new one. And I said... It's about time for the world to hear this. And, Absolutely. Uh, so I got a hold of you. I think I, did I, I think I just sent it to you. I didn't even ask. I just sent it to you or, or sent you a link to it, I think. That's right. And you, you just... got a hold of me so quickly after that. <laughs> Are you kidding? I, I was so afraid something would happen to you, Gary, before I got your permission to use it. So thank God. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, Gosh, I mean, well, so th- you yeah. seem to have a lot of listeners, and uh, we know that the fact that they're listening, they are big Lost in Space fans. So this was the best place to put it. And I got to say, it's something that just has blown me away, because I was not part of this world until I started doing the podcast. But these Lost in Space fans, they're such nice people. They're they really a they good are. group. There's something about this show that I just think it attracts a real nice class of person. They're wonderful people. So... And you are too. And I thank you so much again for sharing this with us and sharing your time and your stories. It's so wonderful. We're going to link to your websites. You'll give me a whole list of things and I'll put them all in the show notes so people can find out about what you're doing. Any place else people can catch up with you? Are you on Facebook or social media? I am on Facebook. Just look up. Well, now I have to give you my real name for that. (laughs) (laughs) Because Gary Francis is actually my radio name. Uh, in the 1970s, everybody had radio names, yeah. and especially in my case, because my last name is so ethnic sounding that uh, a program director would never let you use it in those days. Oh, no. But uh, my middle name is Francis, so it's actually Gary Francis Frascarelli. Okay. I'm okay. Italian. But uh, just look up Gary Frascarelli, F-R-A-S-C-A-R-E-L-L-I, and uh, you'll find my personal page, and if you look up Gary's Ice Cream on Facebook, You'll find my business page. I'm also on Twitter, and uh, I've got to get an Instagram account going. The, the one funny thing, I've been in broadcasting since I was 14, both radio and television, and yet 
I don't have a YouTube channel. You would think yeah. that somebody with the, you know, the stuff I've done would certainly be advertising their company on YouTube, and I don't. And, of course, we even have a jingle, which I'll, uh, I'll send you the jingle also, a very 1950s or early 60s Beach Boys-sounding jingle, like, Gary's homemade ice cream tastes so fine. Good old-fashioned ice cream, you know where to go. Ice cream, you know where to go. I can't sing, by the way, at all. <laughs> Gosh, Gary, thank you so much again for your time. Thanks for uh, sharing all this with us. It's really been fun. It's been a blast. Hope to visit with you again soon, Gary. Thank you, Lane. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. Wow. That was a blast hearing the lost Jonathan Harris interview and speaking with Gary Francis, the man that made it happen. I'm so honored that he decided to share that piece of Lost in Space history with our listeners. Sounds like Gary might have some other Lost in Space audio artifacts in his collection. If so, perhaps we'll be able to get another exclusive visit with him down the line. In the meantime, we will be back next time with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.